Welcome to RAGE, the podcast at University of Denver's Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE for short. I am the show's host, Tom Romero, and I'm a professor of law and history here at DU, as well as IRISE's director. For those of you that have been following, following, RAGE explores the risks and rewards of being a critical race scholar in higher education. In the era of black lives, dreamers, the Flint water crisis, Standing Rock, and vigorous backlash against each of these movements, everyone is seemingly talking about race. Critical scholarship and public engagement by race scholars in op-eds, blogs, essays have often been front and center in these formulations, as has been the resulting backlash or failure to critically engage with some of these insights. Indeed, in many cases, the work of race scholars has often been marginalized and silenced, while policies, practices, and discourses of colorblindness and post-racialism have reigned supreme on our campuses and in our local politics, as well as national politics. The result has often left race scholars silently raging at the intractability and inability of higher education and our larger society for that matter to take racial privilege and anti-discourse seriously. This podcast is part of a collection of three podcasts that is going to explore these tensions in context of a series of books recently published that examine race and gender in higher education. Sitting with me here today is Dr. Mira Deo, professor of law at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law and the author of the recently published book, Unequal Profession, Race and Gender in Legal Academia. The book draws from the first empirical study of law faculty utilizing an intersectional lens to investigate race and gender challenges in the profession and works to identify solutions to overcome barriers facing traditionally underrepresented faculty. Dr. Deo is a co-editor and contributing author for Power, Legal Education, and Law School Cultures, forthcoming with Routledge Press. She has held visiting positions at Berkeley Law, UC Irvine Law School, UCLA School of Law, and currently uh, this year and next year at the University of California Davis School of Law. And she is also the director of the Law School Survey of Student Engagement, or LESI, based at Indiana University. I also need to point out that Dr. Deo is also a graduate of the University of Michigan Law School, uh, where we were both, both of us were friends and activists in support of the Law School's Affirmative Action Program, uh, beneficiaries of that program, and for those uh, that know what was going on in Michigan at the time, know that that uh, affirmative action program was being legally challenged in a case that ultimately made its way to the United States Supreme Court uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, th thank you, Dr. Deo, for joining us today. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here and excited to participate in this podcast. Uh, it's great to have you. Um, my first question, and I think it's, it's the question to sort of get us into sort of the larger issues of this podcast is tell us your journey. Tell us your journey into higher education uh, more generally, but how did you find yourself here at the University of Denver talking about this book today? Yeah, so um, in the book, you know, I write about faculty hiring, and uh, for many women of color law professors, we have this sort of meandering path. I think that's true for me as well. A lot of people talk about themselves as being an accidental law professor, and I think that's definitely my path too. Uh, I knew from the time I was really young that I wanted to be a lawyer. I always wanted to be a lawyer. And so I, I knew that I would go to law school at some point, and I wanted to practice some type of public interest litigation. And I did that. I went to law school. I went to undergrad. I went to law school. Um, as you said, I was very involved in the Michigan Affirmative Action case, the Grutter litigation. Um, immediately after law school, I was a fellow at the ACLU's National Legal Department in New York City, and then I continued doing public interest work at the California Women's Law Center in Los Angeles. But when I was there, you know, I, I drew a lot from the inspiration 
of a number of academics in the social sciences and humanities who had been experts for us in the Gruder case, who had talked about structural inequality, talked about racial challenges and gender difference. And as I was working in civil rights law, I recognized there was a disconnect between advocates and empirical scholars. And even though as part of my job as a lawyer, I was responsible for doing what we called key informant interviews, talking to people in the community and doing sort of community needs assessments, I didn't really feel like I had the methodological skills to be doing that myself. And so I went to graduate school to learn how to do that. I did not go even to graduate school for the purpose of becoming an academic. Um, and then when I was there, I loved it. I loved doing the research. I loved being able to really invest in a particular idea or topic. Uh, I felt very privileged that I had this opportunity to, that my job was to sit and read and think. And um, so uh, when I finished graduate school, I went on the job market and I've been a law professor now for 10 years. As, as you're kind of reflecting on your experience, particularly two very different academic spaces, uh, both I think in terms of how problems are addressed, um, the law school at the University of Michigan, uh, and of course the sociology department at the University of California, Los Angeles, mm -hmm. right? Um, can you reflect on, on your thoughts, the differences between each of those spaces, particularly in the moments um, that you were, you were navigating each of these spaces as a person of color? So, you know, it, it was a really interesting time to be at Michigan Law School because of the litigation. Um, Barbara Gruder, the white woman who sued the school after she was rejected, would have been in my class had she been admitted. Or, you know, you could say I took her seat or, you know, many of the other students of color there. Um, some of her argument was that she should have been there maybe instead of us. So it was an interesting time to be there, um, to think really deeply about your values. And you know, I, I went to undergrad at Berkeley, a, a very you know, generally liberal campus, um, but I was there during the time that Prop 209, which also sought to outlaw um, what they called racial preferences, really affirmative action in hiring and admissions and contract contracting, um, was um, before the public as an initiative. And so there's a lot of activism around that in my undergraduate institution, and then similarly a lot of activism at Michigan. Um, a number of students were really involved in that, as you know, and you were. And there was also a lot of activism around other topics related to race and gender. So we as a group, for example, filed a Freedom of Information Act request against the school when they said we don't have enough people in the applicant pool, that's why we don't have a lot of faculty diversity. We filed a Freedom of Information Act request and said, show us the pool. It's a public school, right? So we can actually get access to that information. And so um, we did a lot of, we used a lot of tactics, those sorts of tactics, when sort of general conversations weren't getting us that far. Um, there were other strategies that we tried to utilize to push that agenda forward. At UCLA, you know, there were similar challenges with regard to student diversity and faculty diversity. I'd, I'd say one big difference is that the department as a whole, right, was focused on structural inequality. And so there was at least a language to utilize. It didn't mean everyone was on the same page or that everyone agreed. Um, but as a whole, 
faculty members there and students had studied and were continuing to study issues related to equality. And so framing the topics with, with those ideas in mind could sometimes create, you know, maybe a little bit more headway than we were able to do at Michigan. Sure. Um, and sort of thinking about that, I mean, going from sort of activist to lawyer to grad student to professor, um, why, why law and not sociology? Mm -hmm. I am trying to do both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is, like I said, my 10th year in law teaching, and the more steeped I get in law, the harder it is to stay as connected to sociology. Um, the law, I, I, I still think of as a, a real instrument to create social change. And so what I try to do in my research and in my advocacy work and, you know, in podcasts or when I give talks or presentations or participate in conferences is to find ways to try to work collectively with others to push the law forward, but drawing from the methodological background that I have in sociology. So even in my scholarship, even in the book, you know, I try to find combinations between law and sociology. And often I do that by incorporating empirical methods, so survey data research or focus groups or interviews with either legal doctrine or with actual law um, or by thinking about the legal profession or legal education as a way to combine the two. Well, I think it's a perfect segue to talk about the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it seems like an obvious place to, to tell us how, how you've managed to, to connect this journey um, as well as the different sorts of trainings and, and sort of catalysts and kind of your thinking um, into a, a really important and powerful study. So, you know, when I started law teaching 10 years ago, I looked around and it was, you know, pretty obvious that there weren't a lot of other people in legal academia who looked like me, right, other women of color especially. And so I looked into the numbers, you know, what little data existed on law faculty, and it turns out that at least 71% of law professors are white and 62% are men. Only 7% are women of color and about 8% are men of color. So really small numbers, a huge disparity. And so I just assumed, you know, others had done this research. Again, I was coming from sociology where people are deeply invested in studying structural inequality. And so I just assumed others had investigated these disparities, both in terms of the numbers and in terms of the qualitative experience of faculty members who had traditionally been and continue to be underrepresented. And I was surprised to find nobody had really done that work. No one had really done any empirical study, a formal national empirical study of law faculty, and certainly nothing that investigated the experiences of law professors using an intersectional race and gender lens. And so I sought to do that sort of study myself. I, mean, I did have the background of being an empirical scholar. I had been in my research studying legal education for a number of years already at that point with a focus on students and especially students of color. And so I thought, you know, the methodological training that I had could merge with the interest in legal education to create this new study focused on law faculty. That's great. I think it's obviously connecting the students to the faculty mm -hmm. um, is, is, is such an important thinking holistically, right, about, uh, about the space and the institution of, of, of the law school, right, or, yeah. or, or, or legal academia sort of more generally. Um, 
I mean, that's one of the interesting things is the more research that I did with law faculty, the more I recognized parallels between what I had found with my empirical research with law students and the ways in which there are race and gender challenges for students, how many of those are really similar to what women of color faculty endure in law schools as professors. You know, this makes me think back and I'll sort of wrap back around that question, right? Law versus sociology, and I, I can sort of give, give the example that I know both of us experienced at, at Michigan Law School. There were very few, if, I mean, there was one black faculty member, one Latino faculty member, maybe one Asian Pacific faculty member. I don't even know if that, that's right. It, it, very low, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I always said, it's, there's no way I'm going to become a law professor. And 20 plus years later, here I am as a, as a law professor um, encountering Right, some of the same sorts of whether we call them. I don't think we had the language of microaggressions back in the late 1990s, right? But microaggressions and sort of structural challenges. So I think to, to connect those experiences is is really key. Yeah. Um, without giving away all the books, we want people to buy your book, right? Uh, what would be? Can you tell us what, what might be one of the biggest surprises one is likely to find after reading your book? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll I can talk about you know some of the. The things that were surprising to me, um, one of them deals with the number of lawsuits or threats of litigation um, among faculty members who were denied tenure or promotion or threatened to be denied tenure or promotion. There were many more than I expected. I, I knew that, of course, that that happens sometimes, that someone is denied tenure or di denied promotion and they think that was done improperly, the process wasn't followed or the outcome wasn't correct. And so they file a complaint or hire a lawyer, but I had no idea the extent to which that happened. I thought it was you know, maybe an isolated one or two instances and there were a number of participants in my study who talked to themselves about their own experience being denied promotion or tenure and filing a complaint with the university as a whole, challenging the process or hiring a lawyer to change the outcome. Um, and for the most part, they were successful in their litigation and with their strategy. I just was surprised to know how common it was. And I think that's one of the goals for me in the book is to reveal some of the challenges that are highly stigmatized that many of us don't talk about even amongst ourselves. You know, there are a lot of um, challenges that are revealed in the book, and I certainly don't want the book to discourage aspiring professors or junior faculty or, you know, even senior faculty who might be considering leadership or other things that I discuss in the book, too. Hopefully, though, reading the book can give people an awareness of what some of the issues are so that they can appropriately prepare, right? Yeah. So they're ready to face those challenges so they're aware of what the issues are and they can address those issues head on. Um, so, you know, if, if you know that you, that you might have to deal with a lawsuit somewhere down the line, maybe you'll think a little bit carefully about where you choose as your institution, right? That you'll ask some questions about tenure or promotion or look up who else is there and how they got to where they are. Or, or ask about it, talk about it generally. But really the book is a way for faculty members to recognize that they're not alone in some of the challenges that they're facing. Yeah. So it's both to help prepare people for what's coming and also to help people who are going through this to, to read the examples of others and see when students complained to the dean about my teaching, 
maybe it wasn't really about me. Maybe this is what students all across the country are doing when they're confronted with a person of color in the front of the room when they're really expecting, you know, that white male paper chase professor, sure. and instead they're kind of disappointed and want to challenge a little bit um, what they're not expecting. The idea and, and, and sort of the surprise of litigation is, is interesting, and, and I hadn't thought about this before, but just you stating it, actually it, it's both surprising but no surprise, right, mm -hmm. for those those of us that, that, that navigate and, and, and connect with and, and create communities, right, uh, community of law professors of color in particular outside our, our own institutions. I mean, it is a law school after all, yeah, right? Exactly. So these are people who are well steeped in the law. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, I mean, if anything, you would think that people would avoid other issues, like that they would follow the process because it's a law school or that they, there would be no <laughs> sexual harassment. And, you know, of course, I, my study reveals a lot of that happening yeah. as well. Well, one of the things I'm curious about, it just struck me. I mean, is there, particular is there, I know, in the book, one of the things you talk about is the importance of community, right? Building yeah. networks um, kind of outside your institution. Yeah. Um, and it, it sort of make, made me think too, right? I mean, is there is there a larger community impact litigation strategy um, yeah. based upon some of the findings of your book, particularly in relation to some of the practices and policies that are seemingly race and gender neutral, right? And in, in terms of how we hire, how we promote, how we tenure, how we get rid of faculty, right? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I, I was very careful in the book to, you know, even when it seems like there is, like I'm suggesting potentially some opening for litigation, I'm, I was very careful to drop a footnote and say, I'm not suggesting that this is grounds for litigation, right? I'm sort of trying to cover my bases too. Um, but certainly these are not individual problems. I mean, the, the the book, if nothing else, reveals the systemic nature of race and gender bias, not just in legal academia. I mean, legal academia is the example that I use in the book, but mm -hmm. it's revealing broader systemic challenges dealing with race and gender that exist in other areas of academia, that exist in the legal profession generally, that exist in all professions. So I, I, I don't think that it's specific to any one school yeah. or any one profession. And so, you know, I'm a civil procedure professor, so I think a lot about class action litigation and impact litigation. And so, you know, to the extent that one of the things you need is something, you know, showing commonality among a large group, I certainly think that um, there is a lot in common for many of the underrepresented and non-traditional faculty members. Yeah. Well, absent a litigation strategy, mm -hmm. um, and even if there is one, I know one of the things that's been going that you've been doing with with this book coming out a couple months ago is you've been on a variety of campuses um, all across the United States, and I'm curious if you were to come back to any of these campuses, including DU, five ten years down the road, mm -hmm. what could you point to? What would you like to see to say, you know what, they took my book seriously? Yeah, I mean, I, ideally we would have very little to talk about. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing <laughs> if the things that we've all been working so hard towards had been implemented? Right? And then it was more just a question of either documenting historically how things had been, yeah. right? Or th sort of thinking through what are the next goals for diversity and inclusion. So um, my, my goal, you know, in terms of how people can, can use the suggestions and proposals from the book to improve things would be for faculty members to all be treated with the respect that they're due, right? For scholarship that focuses on critical race or gender or 
sexual orientation or other identity issues, even family, to be valued institutionally the same way that international law or patent law or torts is valued. Yeah. For women of color to be as expected in the front of the classroom as the white men that students currently tend to expect, right? Because then I think you're much less likely to get ch challenging questions or confrontations to authority um, because you're just another professor like so many of the other professors. And so I think that takes some concerted efforts towards actually diversifying the faculty. So really investing in creating a new model of having more diverse faculty. Because if, if it's not unusual to have a woman of color, then I think the students won't respond as if it were unusual, right? They'll just think, oh, well, that's normal. All of the sections have three women of color or people of color or women, right? It's um, sort of the standard. Yeah. And so investing in the hiring and also in creating environments that are based on mutual respect and the success of all of the faculty members helps, of course, with retention too. So it's, it's not only about faculty hiring. You know, I have one chapter in the book. The first chapter in the book is about faculty hiring, and then there are six more chapters that cover the rest of the experience. Sure. Because, of course, hiring is an opportunity to weed out certain populations or to, you know, it can serve as a barrier to only let in certain populations. But, of course, once people get in the door, we, we institutionally, we do need to provide the support that's needed to encourage them to succeed, right? To survive and optimally to thrive. So if I came back, you know, five or 10 years from now and I could create sort of the ideal picture of what it would be like, that's what I would see. Yeah, that's powerful. I think it's a great image and I think an important image. Mm -hmm. we, sh we should all, and sort of a, an important reality, we should all work towards. Um, as you've done this work, um, from your dissertation work to your own scholarship and then kind of focusing on, on, on getting this, this work done for the book in particular. Um, have you encountered any, any pushback, um, either from colleagues, from uh, mentors, from students, from, from those outside the academy? And, and if so, what does that look like? So um, I've gotten a range of responses, as you might imagine. Um, overwhelmingly, the response has been positive, I think this research had not been done previously, and so I think many people feel like this is the first time that their own experience has been written about, has been included and validated. And so for me, that's been amazing, right, to see so many people tell me that they read their experience in this book, even if they didn't personally participate in the study, um, but that the experiences in the book reflect their own experience. Students as a whole have been really interested. Um, I think for the most part, students don't know much about law faculty. You know, they spend time with us in the classroom and maybe at office hours, but they don't know much about our, the full breadth of our experience as, as academics. And so I think it's been really eye-opening for students to also recognize the ways in which some of their challenges are similar to ours, to see us more as allies. Um, so that's been wonderful. Um, there's been some pushback, certainly. Um, Often that comes in the form of just, you know, people feeling a little defensive. Uh, I'm, I'm not in the book trying to attack any one person or any one institution. The flip side to explaining the ways in which the systemic nature of this problem means that you personally haven't done anything wrong as a woman of color, even if someone is complaining about you, 
is that similarly, you know, it does absolve some responsibility from individual bad actors too, right? Sure. So I am trying to help people recognize that all of us are part of the system. Um, I, I, I think certainly, you know, there are instances of sexual harassment and other things that are revealed in the book where clearly there are some individual bad actors. And hopefully if they're reading those parts of the book, they're recognizing themselves and how they could and should do better. Um, it's been really encouraging for me to hear from particular faculty members who I think are allies in our struggle for equality and really see themselves as allies and yet might read something and recognize that there may have been moments where they were not supportive when they could have been or where you know maybe they did the wrong thing or what they did was perhaps interpreted differently than how they intended. So there have been instances where people have talked to me privately and said, you know, you, you call this out in the book, and I think I've done that before. Now I know better, and now I know not to do that. Um, so, you know, if it can be an opportunity to educate, that's wonderful too. That's yeah. a great way to recognize how we can all do a better job. And I think the challenge of this work is, is people being having the ability to be both introspective uh, without taking it personally, mm -hmm. right? Um, couple couple of questions uh, to, to sort of tie this all off. Mm -hmm. um, one, and it kind of goes back to just your thoughts about connecting with the students. Mm -hmm. um, you started out and you talked about your journey uh, in the space of, of, of being an activist at the University of Michigan. Um, how, do you, how do you empower your students to, to be activists, to be critical, to to, to do, to, to imagine themselves doing transformative work. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I think because my experience as a law student was one where collectively we thought we had a lot of power. I don't know if we actually made a lot of change, but we felt like we could. And so um, because I felt as a student that I could make a difference, I try to make clear to my students that they can make a difference too. You know, I tell them about some of the things that we did at Michigan. Um, I'm not suggesting in any way that they employ similar <laughs> strategies, um, but I want them to know that they have power, right? And I, I think of it much less as me empowering them and much more as them recognizing and being comfortable with the power that they have. Many of my students, like me, are probably the first lawyers in their families and communities. And so um, there are a number of people who will come to them needing help, needing support, um, whether it's you know a, a friend of a friend who needs help finding a lawyer for their divorce or um, a family member who needs help navigating the bankruptcy system. It might not even be your area of expertise, but you are going to potentially be the closest person to the law. And so they're gonna come to you for that help. And so even for my first year students, I think helping them recognize that they have that power, even in their first semester of law school, where they are sort of seen as an expert beyond anybody else in their maybe immediate or extended family. And so they'll be looked at as someone who can provide support, provide that level of expertise. Um, I think that helps raise student awareness as well. And I think that is true for many of my students. Um, at, at Thomas Jefferson and at Davis as well. Um, as director of the Law School Survey of Student Engagement, I have had a really wonderful opportunity to 
get to know students better on a national level, so to think through data on students. This is our 15th year at Lessie, and we have over 350,000 responses from students wow. over the years. Um, asking you know a range of questions, everything from how they spend their time outside of class, um, whether they raise their hand in class, uh, questions about student debt and interactions with their classmates. And so one of the things that's really interesting to me is recognizing that overall students are really satisfied with their experience. Even though they might find many things to complain about individually, um, most of them would choose again to go to law school and would choose again their same school. And so um, it's, it's given me some additional perspective too on how to interact with my own students, right? To draw both from my own experience as a student and to draw from this rich national data set in thinking of um, how I can interact with my students and how I can help them achieve whatever their goals are. Do we have any anything similar in, in other institutions in higher education? So this is up for law students. Do we have anything similar for for grad students and medical students and <laughs> other professional school students? So Lessie actually is, is sort of the you know, younger sibling of um, a much larger project called the National Survey of Student Engagement, okay. Nessie, and that surveys undergraduate students across the country. Okay. Um, and so 15 years ago, somebody thought, hey, why don't we do something similar for law students? Yeah. And so there is a national undergraduate survey, um, and then Lessie focuses specifically on law students. Okay. It sounds like, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of data, right? I tend to learn from, Absolutely. from this. And I, I, we are always looking for people who are excited about the data. So okay. um, if you or your students or colleagues or any listeners are interested in getting their hands on the data set, um, we're very happy to make that accessible and to help use the data to improve legal education. That's our primary goal. Great. Well, thank you for that. That's uh, you, might, you might start getting a lot of, of offers you know, to, <laughs> to use so. that data. So. A couple more questions. Um, Rage is the title of this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, as a professor of color, as, as someone who sort of understands and has studied uh, and sort of draws deeply in sort of, sort of dismantling the way we sort of think about institutional structures of racism um, in, in our institutions, particularly higher education, what does rage mean for you? Rage to me, you know, I think of the word, it's coupled with injustice. Maybe that's because that's what enrages me, right? I think um, I, I wish I could be someone who'd be more comfortable letting things go, especially like if I see or hear about um, or witness injustice. It's very hard for me to um, remain a silent witness to that. And so I think for me, you know, it, the, the coupling is, is about not just justice, but the actual inverse, right, injustice. Um, and potentially, you know, some some breakthrough or way forward where we can channel that rage to make some positive contributions. Thank you. Uh, any final thoughts, affirmations, reflections that you would like to share with our listeners for this episode? So, um, one of the things that I found really heartening and encouraging in my research with law faculty is about community. And community includes family and friends and also the sort of extended networks and relationships that faculty of color especially create with others that go far beyond their own institutions. 
So often, you know, there's only a few faculty members at any one school. And so they have to really rely on people at other schools that maybe are nearby or maybe not even that close. Um, but to try to find a way to still connect with people who might have similar experiences, even though they're not necessarily nearby. So um, I thought I could read just a very short excerpt from the book, um, if that's okay. Absolutely. So this is from Destiny, a black law professor. Um, and this is what I say. Destiny describes herself as, quote, a big family person. And then she clarifies. When I talk about family, I'm really talking about my extended family, including my parents, my sister, my brother, my sister cousin, the people who raised me, grew up with me, and helped propel me to this point. Those are the people I rely on and very close friends. Destiny, like many others, incorporates close friends into her definition of family, including, quote, people I have grown up with, plus a cadre of friends from college that I'm still in touch with, her closest friends from law school, and newer local friends. She emphasizes, my support group comes from outside of my particular faculty. So for those who aren't finding that support immediately nearby or at work, there are still other ways to sort of nurture and develop those relationships and those friendships. Many of the people in my sample talked about how they really could not have survived legal academia without those broad networks. And so I, I certainly would encourage aspiring faculty members, junior faculty members, senior scholars who are feeling alone to reach out and forge those relationships with others. We're all working on this together and hopefully we can collectively move forward. What great words to end on. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, that was in our conversation today, uh, Dr. Mira Deo, who, whose book, Unequal Profession, Race and Gender in Legal Academia is available for purchase all over the place. So, so please pick up that, that copy. Uh, we have reached the end of another episode of The Rage Podcast, brought to you by iRise at the University of Denver. Connect with us at www.du.edu forward slash iRise. While there, don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to hear about our initiative to create new pathways, partnerships, and practices to racial justice in Colorado and the Rocky Mountain West.